I was listening this week to Malcolm Gladwell, who has a great podcast that many of you probably listen to called Revisionist History. And in it, he had one called The King of Tears. And it's about why all things Southern are better than everything else in the world. No, no, no. It was something like that. It was about why certain kinds of music make us cry and why do we like them and why is country music the one who does it most? And he was exploring this aspect of country music and at the end he played a clip from George Jones, the possum, at his funeral where Alan Jackson sang a tribute to him, the saddest country song of all times. Does anyone know what it is? It's the George Jones song. He said, I'll love you. Hey, he stopped loving her today. And Alan Jackson sang that and took off his white Stetson, put it over his heart after and said, we miss you, George. And not a dry eye in the place. And Vince Gill couldn't get through, go rest high on that mountain. And I got to thinking about Alan Jackson, as I do from, some time, from time to time. And I was thinking about a song that Alan Jackson sang back in the 90s. It says, uh, don't rock the jukebox. I want to hear some Jones, George Jones. Because my heart ain't ready for the Rolling Stones. I don't feel like rocking since my baby's gone. So don't rock the jukebox. Play me a country song. See, there's this recognition that there are certain states of being. And this is part of the thing that Malcolm Gladwell goes on to say. That doo-wop music ain't going to fix. There are certain kinds of conditions of soul. Certain kinds of trampled states of relational being where you're gasping for air and you can't hardly move and you don't want to hear something beboppy. You want to hear about a man who loved a woman till he died and he could never get over her. You want to hear about something specific and sad and because it connects with you in some way. It helps you know you're not alone. That famous C.S. Lewis quotation at least made its way into the Shadowlands movie when Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger played C.S. Lewis and his wife and he said we read to know we're not alone there is some aspect of our existence here that makes us want to know in the middle of the dread in the middle of this sense that what's so foul up about me why why am I struggling in a way that no one else is And you want to know that somebody can understand it. You might have had this experience sometime when you have had, for instance, you had some kind of rash on your shin that was shaped like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And at the same time as you had this rash, you had this weird thing where when you were chewing on your right side, you got a left uh, thigh muscle twitch. And, and, And your shoulder hurt. And so you think, this is really odd, and you've, you've diagnosed yourself because that's what you do, and you think, clearly I have some sort of 
uh, instantaneous combustibility cancer, which means in 10 seconds I'm just going to explode to death. So you get uh, medical help, which is to say you go to the Internet. (laughs) And you get on a, a chat board, and you're hoping, you're praying, you're pleading desperate that you're going to start reading a description where someone says, you know, 10 years ago, I had this rash on my shin that looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the secret to me. And then they keep on going and they don't have, but they don't have the chew. And when I chew on my right side, I get the twitch in my left leg thing. They don't have that. And you fall forlorn to the floor. But you keep searching in hopes that somebody is going to have the particular malady that you had. And you're going to find out that, in fact, it wasn't a tumor. And it wasn't some unknown disease. It was just that you hadn't been drinking enough Yoo-Hoo. They drank Yoo-Hoo and it fixed it. <laughs> and that's what you want to discover. That there are maladies that can be fixed with, with uh, fake chocolate milk. <laughs> because you want to know, is somebody else experiencing what I am? Is somebody else hurting like I am? Is somebody else failing like I am? That new priestess of American civil religion, Brene Brown, has said, I like Brene Brown, by the way, and and she has said that one of the, the most important two words you can offer to suffering people is, me too. She talks about the power of empathy. It's all the rage these days, and It's good for it to be a rage because it's an important aspect of caring for people. This aspect of putting yourself in their shoes, this aspect of consolation, this strange consolation that comes when we feel like we're the solitary case of something really embarrassing, something really hard, something really despicable. And somebody else feels exactly the same way. And they say, when they hear us, I'm sorry. Me too. It seems to me that this is one of a few passages in the New Testament where Paul gives us a scriptural me too. The Psalms are full of it. Full of me too's. That's why people love them when they're sad, when they're happy, when they're worried, when they're angry, when they're resentful. They teach us how to lament. They teach us how to access the inner gunk. They give words to things that are brewing inside of us and so much that's inside of us we don't even become fully conscious of until we can get words for it and put it outside of us and the Psalms help us with that and Paul helps us with that too with this scriptural me too it's like his version of a country song it ain't no rock and roll it ain't all parties and everything's happy and it's not that this is exasperation. This is pull-your-hair-out frustration. And Paul's saying to you who feel this way, me too. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this little passage of Scripture from chapter 7 to the end of 8, preached like 22 sermons on this chapter and the next. I'm preaching one sermon on this chapter. She says something about how much can be said about it, but we're going to focus on this aspect of the the Me Too quality of it. And also, many people say this is the most controversial passage in the New Testament, one of the most written about, one of the most debated over, because people are trying to figure out what's going on. And I think in a very large sense, there's a lot of different things that Paul says that are very convoluted and very difficult to understand. But in another way, 
what he says when you hear it is exactly resonant and clear with how most of us experience the Christian life. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I find this other law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner. He acknowledges when he says, here's my me too, that the Christian life, if it's being lived right, is going to have conflict right in the middle of it. And that's only good news if you're living the Christian life and you're filled with conflict sometimes. I don't think he's meaning to say that that is his state of being all the time, at every hour of the day. There are plenty of places in the scripture where he is filled with joy. There are plenty of places in the scripture where he tells others things like, follow me as I follow Christ. He sets himself up as an exemplar. You know the pattern we had when we were among you? We worked so hard so we wouldn't be a burden to anybody. Follow that. Be like me. And here we have him saying, sometimes it's like I'm sold out to sin. Sometimes it's like, I just don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing. Why did I just do that? You ever said something to somebody? It was so mean. And you wish you could say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. But even that, that would be compounding it because you would have just lied. You did mean it. You just didn't mean to say it. And it's embarrassing. And you go, why did I I say that? Because you can't unsay it. And worse, why did I think that? Why did I feel that? I don't want to be like that. He says, I don't understand what I do. What I, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. It could be like a Dr. Seuss rhyme. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And that is good news today. That's the scriptures, me too, to you. If you find yourself ever in a situation where on the one hand, you say, oh, I, want, I want to know Christ. I want to love him. I want to be so filled with love for other people. I, want to, I don't want to think about myself. I want to be generous to other people. I want to serve other people. I want to be contented with what I have. I want to go out into the world and I want to help the poor and I want to be generous with my money and I want to be I want to be nourishing with my tongue. I want to be patient and drink in other people's sorrows and cares with my ears. I want to be a person of prayer. I want to be a person who praises God and doesn't grumble and complain all the time. Oh, I don't want my kids to think I'm a rage monster. I want them to know the grace of God through me. I want my wife to know the grace of God through me. I want everybody who meets me to meet Christ through me. That's what I want. Don't you have moments where you have that? want that. I wish that were true about me. I wish these things could be true about me. And, and, then, and then there's this gap of this disappointing reality of like, but then on the other hand, there are parts of me that's like, ah. yeah, I mean, all that's great, but there's a lot of cool shows on Netflix. And uh, that seems like a lot of work. And it's way easier to just say something snarky and mean than to sort of be patient and enter into somebody's pain. And it's... Uh, Boy, I can get a lot more done in my house if I raise my voice and, and, and act mean than if I sort of work with people. 
And sure thing at, at work, it's e- just easier to cut corners. Like it's so costly to be, have integrity. And, all. and so you've got this conflict inside. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, he says, evil is right there with me. I'm a walking contradiction, as Chris Christopherson once sang. Partly fact and partly fiction. There's some real desires in us that are good. I want to follow God's law. I want to listen to God. I want him to be the influencer of my mind. I really, 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 really do want that. And there's another part of me that walks around when I say that has all my fingers crossed behind my back and says, yeah, but not so much. And if you recognize that in yourself, it can be very discouraging. It can make you say, when you listen to preachers, or you listen to other people, or you see other people do good things, it can make you so profoundly discouraging. You surely are around people sometimes, right? Who are so good, it seems. Who are so good, so warm, so kind, so generous, so, so sacrificial. And you're around them and you say, yeah, it's, I probably am not a Christian. Uh, Yeah, there's no way. If they're a Christian, I'm not. It's clear. There's no way. Because that's what happens. You see see the fruit of their lives, and you know the dirt in your own. And so Paul wants to say, hey, this is my me too for you. This is a normal aspect of what happens in a Christian's life. This conflict. This dividedness. This fighting. It's warfare, he says. It's warfare. And it's important that he says it's warfare because when he gives us this me too, if he merely put everything in therapeutic terms, like you've just been treated badly. You're just, you can't help it. This is, this is purely explained biologically. This is purely explained by a ruptured relationship. If it's merely that, and those things are important, they really are. But if it's merely that, one thing you won't do is be able to fight. But Paul casts this in military terms. It's warfare. My sinful nature is trying to take me prisoner. It's trying to wrestle me to the ground. It's trying to pin me. It's trying to lock me up. It's trying to torture me. It's trying to get me to do what it wants me to do. And it is a war. And I wind up wanting to do good, but instead I do stuff that I hate. You think that's not conflictual? Well, I hope you feel it, the fault line of it in your own life. And Paul says, me too. I feel it. I'm describing it to you. And it's important that he's describing it to us because what he's been doing up until now is he's helped these Romans, and we've gotten over here because God made sure this book was preserved so we could listen to it on the 23rd, second day of July and uh, on Durham Road. And not only us, but lots of other people. He's been saying, you know, by doing good, by following God's law, you're never, ever, 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 ever going to get right with God. In fact, the law is amazing at teaching and revealing and portraying, but it is not a manufacturer. The law is not into production. So the law can tell you to do all kinds of things, but it can't make you do anything. In fact... What actually winds up happening, and he says this at the beginning of 7 here, is the law sin? 
Because he's just said, we don't listen. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. We're moving in the new way of the Spirit. So the obvious question was, so is the law bad? You said we died to the law. Is the law bad? You say we can't be justified by the law. Is it bad? Is God's, should we just chuck it? And Paul says, no. The law has a great function. It teaches. Like, I wouldn't have even known what sin was if it hadn't taught me, for instance, about coveting. It's interesting, of all the sins to pick out, he picks out coveting. You're like, stinking Paul. Like, you know, I wouldn't have known what murdering really was if the law had said, not, don't murder. We'd be like, cool, I don't have to listen to that. And he's like, I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if he hadn't have said, the law hadn't have said, do not covet. And then you're like, ah, coveting. So that's the one that has to do with, like, every impulse that, Everyone in your life all the time is trying to get you to do? Okay. I wouldn't have known what coveting was with this idea of I have these strong internal desires to have what other people have. To want to get it. Not to love them, but to get from them. I want their stuff. I want what they have more than I want God. Don't set your heart, says the commandment, on your neighbor's riding lawnmower. Are there chickens? Why would you do that? Are there are his wife or her husband? Don't set your heart on their job, on their life, on that health that God's given them, but not to you. Don't set your heart on that. Don't desire what you don't have. Be content with what you have, in other words. And he said, I would never have known anything about that until the law said, do not covet. The law was excellent at showing me, here's what I'm supposed to be. But see, the thing is, is sin is this amazing marketer. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced within me, he says, every kind of covetous desire. Which is to say, sin was Amazon. And they knew, like, I had a very healthy and normal desire to get a pair of running shoes, but what they were going to make sure of is the second I looked for them, that for the rest of my life, whether it was a pair of running shoes or a or a new handbag that you've been dying to have all your life, not for me, you know, (laughs) that for the rest of your life you're going to have banner ads and headers enticing you with blowout deals, exceptional service and high quality and fast delivery. Sin said, oh, There's the law, and it actually produces the opposite of what the law requires. That's the problem with the law. It's not that the law is bad. He says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's what he says right there in the text. The problem is us. That we have this germ in us. We have this configuration in us that takes something that's supposed to give life to us, and it becomes death to us. He said, once I was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came. And when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And so I found, I found that that which was supposed to bring me life actually produced death in me. It's like giving penicillin to somebody. Penicillin is an amazing discovery. Penicillin is supposed to destroy infection. And it does for most people. Unless you're allergic to it. 
unless maybe you're deathly allergic to it. And this thing that's supposed to give you life, this thing that's supposed to give you healing, can become an agent of poison and death for you. And he says, the problem with us is, whatever the law commands us to, we're just allergic to it. And sin knows that, and it exploits it. So you cannot walk by a wall that says, wet paint, do not touch without thinking, oh, does that mean I should open it up and jump on it? You can't see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass without thinking, oh, I never thought about that grass before. I think I'm going to go get my monster truck and drive through there, but not before I wet it down and make it muddy first. I never thought about that grass, but now that they said don't touch it, I can't do anything but think about it. I'm going to touch it. I'm going to destroy it. That's what sin does. He says it produces the oppor- it takes the opportunity afforded by the commandment, and it produces in me the very desire that the commandment says don't do. Little kids learn this early. Don't touch that. Outlet. Which outlet? It's irresistible. So he says, not the problem with the law, the problem is with us. But what happens when you become a Christian, and what he's describing to these people is that the law is not bad, it's just not going to save you. It can't save you. You're justified by what Christ has done for you, not by your keeping of God's law. And it's not going to make you into Christ. You can't do this thing on your own. So don't depend on law keeping to keep you into good favor with God. Because you're not going to do it. Not on your own. And that's part of what he's saying here. The law is spiritual. And as a free aside, this is, a, this is just free. When the Bible says spiritual, it doesn't mean it like your friend who says they're, religious but not spirit. they're not religious but spiritual. Well, I don't even know what that means. But they don't mean it that way. They, the Bible, when it says spiritual, it means having to do with the Holy Spirit. Having to do with God. The, the God that exists. The triune God. The, the spiritual has to do with the Holy Spirit making something valid, available, from whom it comes. It has to do with. So he says the law has to do with God. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual. But in so many ways, I'm unspiritual. Sold, he says, as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. What I, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do... But here's how he spins out the conflict. This is how he can say to you, me too. Because he says, when I don't do what I want to do, it's not actually me who's not doing it. <laughs> it's sin living in me. You're like, well, that's some pretty fancy footwork, Paul. I'm going to try that next time. You kids say that, you know, next time you disobey your parents and you get in trouble. It wasn't me. It was sin living in me. And it's true enough. But that doesn't excuse us, it just explains that a Christian, unlike a non-Christian, has two competing natures within them. What Paul would say, he would call the flesh, or the old man, or the sinful nature. That's the normal part of us. That's the part that everybody around us is saying, follow that. Follow your heart. When it says follow your heart, follow your passions, do what you love, don't let anybody tell you what to do, they're saying follow what the Bible says needs to die. Follow what the Bible says needs to die because the flesh or this sin nature, it's just our normal capacities without any help from the heavens. It's just our normal powers, our normal abilities without any structural support from the Savior without any power from God. 
And so Paul knows that's probably the problem is if I'm just acting according to my sinful nature, if I'm just acting according to the old man, then even though it has died in the sense of it's not the ruler of me yet, it still has my ear. It still can entice me plenty easy. It still can make me do things that I don't want to do. It can make me do things that I hate to do. Afterwards, when I go, ah, why did I do that? But he also knows there's another part of him that's being remade in the image of God. And he's going to talk about that next week in chapter 8. Where God has taken up residence in him. And if God has taken up residence in you, you are going to have conflict. That's good news. It's good news if you have conflict inside. And you realize it might sound, oh yeah, I've heard that 400,000 times. But do you realize that's incredibly countercultural? Your world right now says, if you have internal conflict, internal division, you must be doing something wrong. You need to stop that. Give into it. They've applied this to sexuality. If you have, if you have same-sex attraction, or if you just have lust for this different sex, that's who you are. Obey it. Give into it. And see, if, there's all kinds of things in our world where you just give in and you make the conflict go away. You can make the conflict go away. Just give in to your sin. Give into it. Stop fighting. And that's what people do. It's way easier. But the thing is, is that the Bible says it always leads to death. If you just follow the natural trajectory, look around you. Anybody you know who just sort of gives in to every single thing that they want. Just eat as much as you want. Just drink as much as you want. Just stay out as late as you want. Just, just don't exercise. Just play as many video games as you want. Just never exercise if you don't want. Just do whatever you want. That person is going to be in a bad way. And not very long, and they're also, in the end, going to be shut off from God. But when Christ comes in, you're united to him with faith. The sin part dies, and you rise to new life. And now there's two competing principles in you. This new life and this old one. My inner life, I desire and delight in God's law, he says. So you've got to keep fighting. Paul says this is normal. Your sanctification, your becoming like Christ is a slow and often imperceptible thing. And it's not always going to seem flashy and huge. A lot of it's going to seem like a fight. Which means, two little applications. One, it means that you have permission because of how Christ deals with us in this to be gentle with yourself. Like, oh, come on, that sounds new agey, doesn't it? Too much Brene Brown, too many TED Talks. But no, the thing is, it's interesting here, Paul speaks about himself this way, but you don't see him throughout the Bible like constantly kicking himself because of how bad he is. In another place, he says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. And I'll look forward to one day when he will give me his praise. What? And in another place, he says, I'm the worst sinner there ever was. But I... I'm a display of God's unlimited patience. And so the idea is if God's patient towards you, which Paul insists on that being the case, and if God has entered into a process with you that's going to be long and it's going to be a fight, and he's promised not to give up on you, he's patient with you. You have permission. Be patient with yourself. It's sometimes not going to go as fast as you wish. It's going to be struggle. It's going to be conflict. 
the struggle and the conflict is a sign of good. And the other thing is you can be realizing that this gentleness and patience you show to yourself, you need to show to other people. One of the hardest things for us is when people around us are struggling with something that's unidentifiable to us. You've seen that little clip. Dr. Switzer knocks on the door. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, come, come on in. Hi, it's Catherine Bickman. Janet Carlisle referred me to you. Oh, oh yes, come on in. I'm just, I'm just washing my hands. You're the one who's afraid of being buried alive in a box? Yeah, come on in. He's a psychologist, Bob Newhart, and he invites her in. And he sits down and he says, I, just, I want to tell you the way I charge is $5 for the first five minutes. Afterwards, it's all free. <laughs> really, she says. Well, that's incredible. Well, I can guarantee you it's not going to take more than five minutes. And, uh, but we don't do any insurance billing, and we only take cash or check, and I, I, I don't make change, he says. And so she, she goes, wow, wow, okay. And he says, uh, so, uh, go. He's looking at his watch. She says, what? And he says, go, t- uh, your problem, whatever it is that's bothering you that you came in here to talk to me about, tell me about that. And she says, well, I, I have this fear. I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I start thinking about being buried alive in a box, and it's just, it's just horrible. And he says, um, well, uh, ha- has uh, anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she goes, no, but, but truly, thinking about it makes my life miserable. I, I can't go through tunnels, or, or in a, I can't get in an elevator, or, or even be in a house, anything that's, that's boxy. And he says, so what you're saying is you're claustrophobic. She goes, yeah, that's it. And he goes, okay, well, uh, let's see here, Catherine. Um, I'm going to say two words to you right now, and I want you to listen to them very carefully. I want you to take them out of the office with you and apply them and incorporate them into your life. And she says, oh, oh, okay, should, should, should I write them down? He goes, well, I mean, if it makes you feel more comfortable, you can write them down. But I find most people can, can remember them. It's only, it's only two words. She goes, okay. And he goes, okay, are you ready? Well, here, here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> and she says, what? What? Stop. And he goes, stop it! She goes, stop it? Stop! New word. It! He says. And she says, well, so, so what are you saying? And he goes, you, you, know, you know, Catherine, uh, it's, it's really kind of funny that how many people actually say what you've just said, but it's very, I'm just telling you to stop it. I mean, you're, you're describing, you don't, you don't want to be buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that, that's, thinking about that, that sounds terrible. So, uh, so stop it. Stop, don't do that anymore. That sounds frightening. And then he says, well, that's, uh, we, that's only three minutes, so uh, that'll be $3. And she goes, I only have a five. And he says, I don't make change. And she goes, well, I'll take the last two minutes then. And he goes, oh, okay. And then he says, well, she, she says, well, I also have a problem. I overeat. I sometimes, uh, I sometimes throw up my food. And she, he says, well, stop it. That's not a good idea. And she, she says, okay, well, also I sometimes have a tendency of being in destructive relationships with men. And he says, stop it. What are you, a kook? You want to have a relationship, a good relationship with you, don't, don't you? Well, then stop it. 
She goes, well, I, I, wa- I wash my hands a lot sometimes. And he says, well, that's, that's okay. <laughs> There's a lot of germs out there. <laughs> that's a long illustration, but it's funny. But it's interesting to me when the struggle is not inside you but outside you and people struggle with things that are so usually the people you're around the most have struggles. They're going to have struggles that are kind of foreign to you. It's going to be easy to just sort of get fed up with them and say, stop it, without realizing that they've got a big war going on inside them like we do. Some of the angriest, coldest, most sullen, most depressed, most out landishly behaved people you know, they have a major war going on inside them. Just like you. And so it's gentleness and patience like the Savior that will, that will be your way of being able to say to them, me too. Your access point for gentleness with them. That's how Father Brown, Chesterton's character, when asked, how do you solve all these crimes, all these murders and things? And he says, well... I solve them because I've already committed all the crimes in my own heart. The apostle knows that there's one answer for this conflict. Within ourselves, he tells us, I think, so we can be gracious, gentle, and patient with ourselves, gracious, gentle, and patient with others, because Christ is patient with us. But as he feels the conflict most acutely, he does what people do in crises. See, Milton Friedman, the economist, said, crisis creates change. He was talking about economic policy, public policy. But it happens in individual lives, too. And when you feel this conflict, this crisis in the middle of your soul, it tends to make you cry out to Christ because you realize your powerlessness. You realize you can't change yourself. You realize that you seem to be held hostage, even though the Scripture says you're not captive to sin anymore. And so he cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Oh, yeah, Jesus Christ. Jesus will rescue me. And he's going to talk about that, the Jesus who does not condemn him, even though he can't keep the law all the time, even though he sometimes does what he hates. And he's going to tell us, as the Scriptures do, that there are ways that we meet up with these conflicts and they can be resolved by appealing to Jesus. In fact, it's the conflict that creates a crisis which urges us outward. Leanne Payne talks about a time when she was eaten up with unforgiveness for somebody who had wronged her. And I've, I've been around people, and you have too, who have been wronged in such drastic ways sometimes where they say, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I will never forgive that. Ever. It's a, it's a commitment that says there's... There are certain things you can't forgive. But see, a Christian starts to wrestle, though. They feel the conflict. And Leanne Payne says, I felt this. I knew, on the one hand, I want to forgive. I know, Christ, you call me to forgive. I know you want me to let this person off the hook. I know you want me to move toward them. I know you want me to let them free. Forgive them. But on the other hand, I don't want to, and I can't. And I have so much resentment. I have so much hurt. They did so much wrong to me. I can't do it. And she said, one afternoon, I spent the afternoon crying out to God about it. And I said to him, oh, Lord, if you want me to forgive, you're going to have to forgive them through me. You're going to have to empower it. You're going to have to scrape out the resentment. You're going to have to resource my capacity to not make them pay. 
And see, Christians start to realize that this is a way forward. It's in these crisis, conflictual moments. We cry out to Christ like the man, blind Bartimaeus, crying out, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And the people said, shut up, man, don't bother him. And he cried out all the more. And the woman who had suffered much at the hands of many doctors and had spent all she had, pushed through the crowd, if I could just touch the hem of his garment... I could get well. There's this sense that there's certain crises and a certain conflicts in us that we cannot resolve, that we need the power of Christ. If we just follow our own noses and follow our own hearts, there's a limited trajectory there. It's going to run us into the ground. We need help from the heavens. And Jesus Christ says, new life, I'll give it. Call out for it. Come to me to get it. And to that woman... With the bleeding issue, he says, your faith has healed you. And to the man born blind, he says, your faith has saved you. And to the Apostle Paul, who says, I do not do what I want to do, but what I hate to do, as he sits at the end of his life, he recognizes that Jesus has said to him, you are a trophy of my grace, a walking advertisement for the breathtaking patience of God. So when you hear the Bible's Me Too, realize that Christ has patience for you too. So run after it. Go to him for it. And ask him to work it through you. Amen.